Uh, folks, would you welcome Danny Tice as he comes to minister the word to us this morning. God bless you, man. Thank you, Sammy. Love you. Love you. Well, it's good to be with you guys again. It's so good to see everybody, and it's just been such a delight to be with Sam and Yvette. They're some of our very best friends. And we, you know what I like about them? They're just so real, and we just love to hang out with them. We don't have to put on any airs, and we just laugh and say whatever we think, and sometimes we have to repent later, but it's just really good to be with them. And it's just an honor to have, you know, uh, David and Debbie. Uh, Debbie, and, Debbie and David Kerr have been our friends for years, and um, the reason they're here to church today is they didn't come to hear me preach. Uh, Sammy refused to take me to the airport for Monday, so they drove over to pick us up. So anyhow, well, listen, I love being with you guys. I appreciate this church, and I appreciate uh, Sam's leadership. I've been riding around Tyler with him since Wednesday. We got here Wednesday, and we've been riding around, and it seems like he knows everybody in Tyler, and uh, everywhere I go, he's, you know, talking to people and all that. Sam, he's such an extrovert. Uh, that's why we became such good friends. I was an introvert. He was an extrovert, and um, how many introverts are here? I know you probably don't want to raise your hand, but you're an introvert. You know, uh, <laughs> You know, when you're an introvert, it's so great to have an extrovert as a friend because it takes all the pressure off. They do all the talking. You just sit there and just, like, let them talk. And so that's, like, how our relationship works. You know, I'm just kind of the, the thoughtful, introverted person. Sammy's the extrovert. And, and it was so funny. We were riding on Tyler. Everybody knew him, you know. Everywhere we went, they're waving at Sammy and all that. And, and when I was in high school, we'd go to the... Uh, the shopping center before malls, they had shopping centers. We were walking down the shopping center, and everybody was waving at Sam, knew Sam. I just kind of walked beside him, you know, so that was, that was my deal. So, but I love your church. I, I love Bradley and the team leading worship this morning. They did such a good job. Why don't you give your uh, worship team a hand? You're really blessed. These guys do such a good job. I thought their, their worship set was so, so pure, and the words were so simple and worshipful. And uh, I get to see a lot of different churches, and uh, I just was really blessed by the authenticity of the worship this morning. In fact, when I was standing over there kind of worshiping with you, I, I just had this, uh, you know, kind of word that came in my heart about your church and something that's special about your church, and it's the word authenticity. This is a church that has a lot of authenticity, and uh, you just want to really hold on to that because part of your wheelhouse, what God's kind of made you good at here is a sense of authenticity. This is not a churchy place. This is not a religious place. This is not where there's a bunch of people with religious spirits and are weird. This is just a really good, authentic place. And so just remember, that's who you are. And uh, so I just really appreciate it. That's my kind of church. If I was in Tyler, I'd come here because I like authentic churches, and this is the real deal. So just uh, just excited about you you guys. Uh, let me... Let read a scripture to you. I'm going to uh, share something with you that I feel that's on my heart, and, uh, and it is in Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse 5, then Joshua 3, 17, and then I'm going to read a little bit of Joshua chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. If you have it memorized, you can just quote along with me. Joshua 3, 5 uh, is the first verse I want to read to you, and then we'll slip down and we'll read uh, Joshua 3, 17. Uh, Joshua 3, 5. Uh, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And then verse 17 says this, the priest who, call, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then in chapter 4, 
Uh, and we'll read the nine verses here. Joshua 4, 1 through 9. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men who had appointed the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the water of the Jordans were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, as the Lord had told Joshua, and carried them over with them to their camp where they had put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are, they are there to this day. Well, one of the things that Karen and I do... Uh, Karen and I have been married for about 39 years. Uh, we are empty nesters now. All of our kids are gone. We were a little depressed about that for about a week, and now it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, we absolutely love uh, our life now, and it's just wonderful. It's just great. And we have grandkids. They come in, and we you know, play with them for a while, and then we go back to our wonderful life as empty nesters. We love it. How many empty nesters are here? Your children are, are all gone. Isn't it absolutely wonderful? It's amazing. So anyhow, so one of the things we do is that uh, we eat dinner, you know, every night together. And when we get our dinner together, we usually eat at the bar. And uh, we set up my iPad, and we do this every night pretty much as we eat dinner. We watch I Love Raymond. And the reason we love to watch I Love Raymond is because I Love Raymond is the most dysfunctional family that you'll ever see anywhere. And so I take a lot of comfort that my family is at least not that dysfunctional. So we watch I Love Raymond, and in I Love Raymond, there's this little uh, quirk that Robert the brother has. Robert has this little quirk. Before he eats anything, he always touches his chin. And if he's eating potato chips, he touches his chin. And whatever he eats, and everybody in the family makes fun of Robert because of this weird kind of crazy thing that he does. And so that's kind of, you know, the thing that uh, kind of attracts us to that show. It's such an interesting, interesting show. And when I think about the Bible, you know, there's a lot of crazy things in the Bible. If you really are honest about the Bible and you read the Bible, you look at it, one of the things that you discover is there's a lot of crazy things in the Bible. People do crazy things in the Bible. And, you know, you, people come to the Lord, they come to faith in Jesus, they become a Christian. So we get them reading the Bible, and we don't really explain to them there's a lot of crazy things in this book, a lot of crazy things that people do. This is one of those crazy stories, in my opinion. The children of Israel cross the Jordan River, sort of like a mini version of the Red Sea crossing, and they cross the Jordan River, and then you see this scene take place. Just imagine that you're a little bit away from what's taking place, and you're not really, you can't hear what's going on, but you see the children of Israel hurry across the Jordan River. The Bible says if you read the rest of chapter 4, that they hurried across. They were trusting God, but they ran across. They want to make sure that they got across in time. And the Bible says that when this was all done, when everybody got off to the side, uh, got across the Jordan River, that Joshua called 12 men together. 
And if you're sort of standing off to the side and you can't hear what's taking place, you'll see Joshua huddle with these 12 people. And then he points into the river. And then you see these 12 men hustle into the river. They run into the river and they go right where the, the priests are carrying the ark on their shoulders, sort of standing there. And then you see these 12 men look around on the ground and they pick up some big rocks and then they carry them out of the river and they set them down before Joshua. And then Joshua sort of gives them some instructions and they build this ark or this, this altar there, and they celebrate the moment. And then Joshua waves for the priest, and then the priests carry the ark out of the Jordan River, and then the Jordan River comes back. That's sort of a weird thing. It's kind of a weird story, especially the rock part, that they go get rocks out of the Jordan River. That is a little strange. That, you know, after this thing takes place, you know, the miracle's incredible, but they go and get rocks, and then Joshua has them take these rocks and make this altar, this memorial of what had just happened. That, to me, is a little weird. It's a little strange. It's just strange to me. So that's what they did. That's what God told Joshua to tell the people to do, and they get these rocks. Now, the reason that they get these rocks is clear in the text. The reason they get these rocks is this is to be a, mem a memorial day, a day that they remember forever. This is a very special day. They're not to forget what has just taken place. And when I read this uh, several weeks ago, and I was looking at this passage, all of a sudden, I, was just began, I began to have a little bit of nostalgia about my life. I began to think about the things that God has done in my life. And, uh, you know, so many times in life, you kind of, you know, you, something big and special happens in your life, and you hit the gas pedal, and you move on to the next thing. You move on to the next thing without savoring the moment of what has just taken place. Now, here's what I believe, that this is a, a special day in the history of the nation of Israel, a very, very special day. And, uh, you know, every day is special. The Bible says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad in it and rejoice. But how many know there are some really, really special days? There are some days when God does some amazing things in your life. And this is the culmination of fulfilling a dream. They've had a dream for decades to get into the promised land. And this is the day that they finally get in the promised land. This is the day that they finally realize their dream. And when you have a dream that comes to pass, or you finally reach a goal that you've been working at for a long time, what you need to do is not hit the gas pedal, go into the next thing, but you need to stop. And you need to savor that moment of what has just taken place. You need to savor that. I was, uh, some of you know, I'm a tennis player. I'm an avid tennis player. Uh, I love to play tennis. I have this one particular uh, guy that I play every Friday that I have trouble beating. Uh, and uh, I play about four or five times a week early in the morning before work. And uh, I do pretty well until Friday comes. And when Friday comes, this guy just eats my lunch every week. He just beats me every week, and, and I try my best, and I try to do well. But the other week, I was playing him, and I had my Wheaties that morning, and uh, I was prayed up, and I was playing like a tennis god. <laughs> I was doing incredible, and, and I got ahead, and I was beating him 5-4, and he was serving, 
and, uh, and it was 30-40, uh, and he was serving, and he hit the ball long, and, and I beat him, and I turned around to retrieve the ball that went long. And when the ball went long, I saw that ball go long, and I'd been wanting to beat him for months, and finally I beat him, and as that ball went long, I just sort of sucked in the moment. I just kind of took it in and savored it because, you know, when something good happens, you need to take it in and savor it because it's a special moment. And so this is what Josh was teaching the children of Israel that at this moment when, when there's been a, a big, incredible goal that's been fulfilled for them, that, that they need to sort of pause and take that in and enjoy that moment because that moment is very, very special for them. You know, for you, maybe, you know, you finally get that degree. You've been working to get that degree. And when you finally get that degree, you want to savor that moment. Take that in. Or maybe you finally built that house that you want to build. Kind of savor that moment. Take it in. It's very important to do that. And so, so that's a very important thing. Uh, th- there's a picture of my, my uh, son when he got married. Uh, and, and maybe you think about, you know, you finally finally find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and you get married and you save them all. Here's a picture of my son, one of my favorite pictures of his wedding when he got married. And uh, this is a picture I think that we're going to put up. That's his wife, Stacy, and she's got her hands up. And you know what she's saying when she's got her hands up? I got him. That's what she's saying. I got him. <laughs> so you need to savor the moment. Savor the moment. Savor the moment is very important. That's a principle in life. When children of Israel crossed the Red Sea or, or the, the Jordan River and Joshua had them set up those rocks and those stones, they didn't like hit the gas pedal, go into Jericho, go, go into Ai, go into Gibeah. They stopped there, and Joshua passed out Cuban cigars. <laughs> and they all took those Cuban cigars, and they smoked those cigars, and they looked at those rocks, and they looked at the Jordan River, and they looked at where they came from, and they savored the moment. Everybody say this with me. It's important, it's important. To, savor to savor the moment when you cross a big goal, and God does something special in your life. So stop. Pause. Savor the moment. Get your Cuban cigar out and kind of enjoy the moment. So what I'd like to do, just for the few moments I have this morning, I'd like to do this. I'd like to, I'd like to take some rocks from my life. I'd like to build a memorial in front of you to inspire you to build a memorial in your life to remember what God has done for you. So if, if I can inspire you to build a memorial for your life, then that's what I want to do today. I want to try to do that because here's what I believe. I believe that the best tool for building faith is a good memory. The best tool for building faith is a good memory. Remembering what God has done in your life. Now, the Bible says here that when they uh, got those rocks out of the, uh, the Jordan River, that they put them on their shoulders. So evidently, these were big rocks. These were big boulders. These were big things. So what are some big things that God has done in your life? What are some big things that God's done in your life? Now, there are some big things that God has done in my life. When I think about my memorial and I think about the stones that I would build and the first stone that I would get out of, of the history of my life, uh, it, it would have to do with my wife, Karen. Uh, I've been married for 39 years, and uh, when when God brought Karen into my life, when uh, I was a very, very young man, I consider that to be one of the most, and, and most substantial things that God ever did in my life. And so when I think about how that took place, 
Uh, and and I, if I were to take, you know, build my memorial, I, that first stone I would put down would, be, would, would have Karen's name on it. Because when I was a, a freshman in high school, 14 years old, uh, my dad was a Methodist pastor, and we were uh, transferred to a different church, a little church in Blades, Delaware, uh, and the United Methodist Church there. And I was a freshman in high school, 14 years old. I went to a Sunday school class the first Sunday. I'm sitting there. And I'm sitting in that class, and uh, there's a few other people around, and in three girls. And the girl in the middle had brown auburn hair and these beautiful brown eyes, and she was absolutely, incredibly, she was good looking. She was seriously good looking. <laughs> Millennials would say she was smoking hot. That's what they would say. So I saw her, and I thought, wow, I love this church. This is a great church. <laughs> and I sat there in Sunday school that day, and I didn't think about Jesus hardly at all. <laughs> but I saw her, and I thought, oh, my gosh, wow, this is awesome. And I was sort of interested in her. She was not interested in me. You know, I wasn't dressing the best in those days. I had white shoes on, a white belt looked like Pat Boone. You know, it wasn't very, very impressive. But I saw her, and then when I was a, a junior in high school, when I was a junior in high school, I was coming out from uh, class one day to walk to my car, a 1969 Chevrolet Nova. I was walking out to get in my car, and I heard a voice behind me, and it said, Danny, can you give me a ride home? And I turned around, there was Karen. And she was stunningly beautiful, and I said, well, sure, I'll give you a ride home. So, so uh, I opened the door for her. I actually put my books on top of the car, opened the door for her, got her in, and I'm, I'm walking around the car trying to think about everything I'm going to say to her and got my mind on her, and we're riding down the road right behind the school. There's a soccer game going on over here. The school buses are being let out. There's cars going everywhere, and I'm trying to make conversation with her. That's when I recognized and saw my, my books fly off the top of my car. <laughs> So I had to pull my car off to the side, the 1969 Chevrolet Nova, pull it off to the side and uh, gather up my books and my papers. And I can't remember a thing I said to her after that, but uh, she felt so sorry for me that she married me. So <laughs> So, you know, here's the thing about that, though. You know, every Sunday morning before I get ready to preach, I'm sitting in my little uh, wingback blue chair at home. I'm sitting in my chair there, and, and I'm studying. And every Sunday morning, this happens. Every Sunday morning, Karen comes out to me, and she says, How do I look? And I say to, you, I say to her, You look amazing. I'm a smart man. I say, You look amazing. You look better than you did last week. You're absolutely stunning. And I always say that to her. And then she says, does this match okay? Does that look okay? How's my makeup? And I say, oh my gosh, you are, you're hot. I'm telling you, you look great. And uh, so, and then, and here's, this happens every Sunday. She puts her hand on my shoulder and she prays for me. She asks the Lord to bless me as I speak that Sunday. She asks the Lord to fill me with wisdom. She asks the Lord to anoint me. And she prays for me every Sunday before I preach. And if you don't think I'm preaching good today, it's Karen's prayer. That's the problem. Here. <laughs> but she's the, she's the perfect wife for me. 
She knows me. She loves me. She understands me. And my goal, and I've been in ministry for 35 years, and one of my goals in ministry is to hopefully preach as well as I can and teach the Word as good as I can. But one of the things that I want to do is I want to stay married and be happy in my marriage so that I can show the millennials of this generation that have given up their hope on marriage, that they just live together. They don't even think about getting married because they've lost their confidence in marriage, that people can still be married for a long time and have a good marriage together, and that can be what we can do together. Can you say big amen? Amen. By the way, how many here, you've been married more than 25 years. Just raise your hand if you just lift your, let's look around here. These are people that have made it and, and, uh, and smile when you raise on your hand. You're, you're happy. <laughs> so when I think about what's God done in my life, I believe that providentially, providentially, and I believe the Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. There's nothing wrong with Christian mingle and, you know, trying to find somebody proactively looking for a wife and all that. I heard about the, uh, the, 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 the woman that was at the uh, nursing home. She'd been there for years, and this old guy was a new client there. He was there, and she was looking at him across the lunch counter there, and, and she said to him, you look just like my fourth husband. And uh, he said, my dear ma'am, how many times has she been married? She said three times. And uh, so anyhow... <laughs> I believe there's nothing wrong with seeking a spouse and going after it and putting a make it, Mary Kay on, looking good, you know, going for it. But I believe when I look at God's hand in my life, I believe that providentially God brought Karen into my life. And so that's the, the first big stone. When I think about God, what, what's the big thing God did for me in life? I, 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 he's given me a wonderful spouse. About that time when I was uh, 14 years old, uh, freshman in high school, uh, another person came in my life that was very, very uh, familiar to you, a guy named Sam. And uh, I had known Sam when Sam was in second grade, when we were in second grade together. And here's what I remember about Sam in second grade. Uh, we had these, you know, we'd be at the recess, and Sam always had these nosebleeds. And uh, he was always going to the nurse, you know, with his head up with his nosebleeds. <laughs> And to be honest, I thought, what a sissy. He is such a sissy. I thought to myself, I'll give his nose something to bleed about. You know, this is a... He always had these nosebleeds. I thought, what is wrong with that kid, you know? And, uh, but Sammy was so outgoing and all that. And we kind of lost contact for... We were in different tracks in school. And then when we got into high school, Sammy uh, got connected to me again. And then we were... Uh, you've heard the story. We were, uh, my dad was the Methodist pastor where I first saw Karen. I was stunned by her. And uh, Sam and I became friends again. He was the extrovert. I was the introvert. And we just kind of hung out together. And we were playing sandlot football. And I'd been telling him about Jesus. Been talking to him about Jesus. And, uh, and you know, he wasn't really, I couldn't really read him, you know, how he was responding to that. And I didn't know if I was getting through or not. You know, sometimes you're talking to people, you don't know if you're getting through or not. And I didn't, I couldn't tell if he was buying it or, or not. And I'm, it went months we were talking about this because we sort of started talking about Jesus in September, our first, uh, when we first got into freshman, freshman year of high school. And then on December 7th, we were playing Sandlot football in Blades, Delaware, uh, a few streets down from where my dad's Methodist church was. And we're walking back from playing Sandlot football. And when we're walking back, we walk by the front of my dad's Methodist church there, and we had our, our beanies on. 
and our beanies were covered with dirt and leaves and all that. And, and Sammy turns to me in front of that Methodist church, and he says to me, I believe today is the day. And I said, today's the day for what? I'm a real dense kid, you know. He said, I believe today is the day that I'm going to accept Jesus. And uh, so we walked in. The Methodist church had big red doors on it. We took off our beanies, and we walked down the middle of the aisle, and we knelt at the altar there in front of my dad's, uh, my dad's pulpit where he would preach. And I had the privilege, one of the greatest privileges of my life, to lead your pastor to the Lord when he was a 14-year-old boy in, uh, in, in a freshman in high school. So when I think about one of the stones in my life, one of the big things God did in my life, the, one of the big things I put on my shoulder, a big thing, was when I met Sammy Fisher, and I got him to lead the Lord, lead him to the Lord. Now, here's what he's been doing all week here in, in Tyler. It's absolutely humbling. Everywhere we go, he introduces me as the man who led him to the Lord. He took me to the Christian school the other day, and we went from class to class to class, and he he introduced me to all the teachers and all the students. He said, here's Danny Tice. Here's the guy that led me to the Lord. You know, he's on the interstate w- waving people down. <laughs> this is a guy that led me to the Lord. And if I don't ever do anything else right in my life, at least I had the encounter with a very special person named Sammy Fisher. And uh, I'm very, very grateful to him. And that's a big, big part of my, of my story. When I was, uh, Karen and I got married in 1977, uh, 1981 was my last year of Bible college. I got to meet Debbie and David Kerr during that period. We became good friends. And in uh, 1980, uh, in the first part of that year, uh, Karen got pregnant with our first child. And we were in Bible college, our last year of Bible college. And uh, what happened was, you know, she got pregnant and, you know, it was one of those Oh, we're pregnant, present, uh, one of those things. And uh, so a baby's coming, so we're, we got ready, you know. Uh, so uh, Karen went into, uh, how we found out actually that she was pregnant, uh, it, was, it was January. She was, had morning sickness, and we're living in Pensacola, Florida. She had morning sickness. And uh, we didn't, I don't know why we'd get a pregnancy test. Uh, we, 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 she wanted me to take a sample of something to the pregnancy center. And so I, I took the sample of the something to the pregnancy center. And, uh, and I took this sample up there and I stood there and they told me that my wife was pregnant. So I came back in the house and Karen is on the couch uh, in our little house on V Street in Pensacola, Florida. And she's laying on the couch and Ronald Reagan is giving the inaugural dress. He's become president, and she, she, he is giving the inaugural dress as I told Karen that we are pregnant, that she is pregnant. We're going to have a baby. So a little piece of trivia there. And she's laying on this cheap couch, $20 couch we bought. She's laying on the couch, and she's got morning sickness, and there's a bucket there. And so, so that's our life. And so I said, yeah, we're going to have a baby. So on August, August 5th, uh, Karen and I went to Debbie and David's uh, home group. They were, led, they were home group leaders. And Wednesday night, we went to uh, our home group meeting. And then one o'clock in the morning after that, early Thursday morning, Karen's water broke and, and the baby's coming. So the baby's coming early. The baby's three weeks early. 
So we gathered our stuff together and we headed to Sacred Heart Hospital, but we stopped at Albertsons first to buy me some Tums. So we went there <laughs> to Albertsons to get me some Tums, and then we went to Sacred Heart Hospital, and they, they put this belt on Karen that in those days, that, during deliveries, they would put a belt on to monitor your contractions. But they didn't put the belt on right, and so they weren't seeing any contractions. So they were giving her medication to make her have contractions. But the computer didn't indicate that she was having contractions, so they gave her more medicine. And she was having these mega contractions, and then all of a sudden her, her uterus sort of popped. And uh, we were in delivery, and our little preemie was born, uh, you know, with all of that drama and took in amniotic fluid and blood and his little lungs were developed. And when he was born, he was blue and he was limp. And I didn't know. I've never seen a baby born before. I thought that's how it was. And they kind of held my son up in front of me and they said, you know, here he is, and then ran out the door. And then I'm trying to take care of Karen, and they actually operated on Karen. I stayed in with Karen as they, as they sewed her uterus back together. And I literally know Karen inside and out. So anyhow, there's a... <laughs> So the doctor, the doctor tells, uh, tells me, you know, Mr. Tice, your, your, your son is very, 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 very serious because not only has he ingested all this fluid, but his lungs were not developed. And because his lungs weren't developed, he's very, he's very serious. And so uh, I began to pray over him. And I stood in uh, Sacred Heart Hospital, which happened to be uh, one of the leading neonatal units uh, in Florida, very, very good hospital for children. And I stood there over him, and I prayed for him. And, and they told me about his blood gases, what they needed to be, and how his oxygen numbers needed to be. And I stood there and kept praying over him. And... Uh, and so I went home that night, and I got on my knees, and when I got on my knees uh, in, in that same couch that Karen was laying on, that $20 couch where I told her that, you know, she was, you know, pregnant, uh, I knelt there, and I prayed, and, and I had this, this word that God gave me, and it was the word out of Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, uh, and it says, when I see the blood, I will pass over, and I will spare your firstborn son. And I knew from my studies in Bible college that the word Passover was the Hebrew word to hover over and protect. And so I began to pray that that night. And then I, and I, I wrote that scripture on a 12 by uh, our, our little index card. I wrote that scripture on that card and I asked the nurses if they would let me put that on his, uh, over his crib. And so I put that over his crib and I, I, I pinned that scripture up there and I stood there and I looked at that scripture and I looked at the blood gas numbers and I looked at that scripture and I prayed over him and I prayed over him and God began to do uh, great work in that little baby's life and healed him and uh, he came home in 30 13 days, and now he's an architect, he designs homes. And we go to the beach, I see his big hairy back, and, uh, and he, he provided me with the most wonderful granddaughter. And when I think about, hey God, what's those, what's those big things you've done for me? What's those big things you've done for me? Oh my gosh, I remember a little boy that almost died that's my son now, that's 34 years old and designs, you know, million-dollar homes on the beach in, in Rehoboth Beach. And I put that stone down there and I say, God, you've been good, you've been faithful. I don't want to forget that. I need to remember that. That's part of my story. And when I came to uh, 
my first church, I finished Bible college in 1981, and I came to this little church in Delaware, and uh, it was a little church in this little community. I started there, and I was 24 years old. I had three sermons when I went there, and, and, and we had a little baby, of course. We had Timothy and Karen there, and so uh, we started this church. We had 60 people the first Sunday, and after three months, there were 20 people there, and... Uh, <laughs> They were people leaving, and they were squealing their tires in the parking lot, and they were like, giving me this before they left, and like, what the world are you doing? And it was just terrible, and Karen, and, you know, on, on a hill in Tyler overlooking an interstate, and that's, and I thought it was the only hill in Tyler, but he says there's other ones here, too. So I get been embellishing the story a little bit, but... But if God gave you land, I'm pretty sure he's going to give you a great building and great facilities on top of that land. Because the best tool to build your faith is a good memory. To remember what God has done for you. And when you leave and go home today and you eat at Texas Roadhouse, Steakhouse, wherever you eat, and you take your nap, sometime today, sometime today, I want you to start on your memorial. I want you to start going through your life and saying, God, you kept me when I didn't think I was going to make it. You did a miracle when I needed a miracle. And I've forgotten what you did 10 years ago. I've forgotten what you did 15 years ago, but I'm going to remember it because my memory will stimulate my faith for the present and the future. When I was finishing Bible college, I was interning under Don Luce. I had to do an internship, and he was one of our, our pastors and professors at the school there. And, and I had to write sermons and funerals and do the stuff that pastors have to do. And he sent me to Baptist Hospital one day to visit a lady in the hospital to do a pastoral visit, and I went here, went there to visit this uh, lady at uh, Baptist Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. She was in her 70s, and she was, she was sick, and I walked in to see her, and she was like so, so inspired and so full of life, and I thought, my goodness, this lady is just fired up, and, and she said to me, she said, you know what my favorite, my favorite book in the Bible is? I said, I don't know. She said, the book Acts. I, I said, well, that's great. I love the book of Acts. She said, you know what my favorite chapter in the book of Acts is? I said, I don't know. She said, chapter 29 of Acts. And I said to her, I said, well, that's like, um, that's like when Paul was shipwrecked, right? Wasn't that when he was shipwrecked? She said, honey, Acts only has 28 chapters in it. <laughs> she said, my favorite chapter in the book of Acts is not what he did, but what he's doing. Amen. And I'm living Acts chapter 29. And you have a great legacy in this church, a great history. And you have a great legacy personally. And he did some great things in your life. But he's got some great things that he's doing and some great things that he's going to do. Amen. Lift your hands to the Lord right now and ask the Lord to bless you. And just lift your hands up. I want you to give thanks. And I want you, first of all, to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry for not remembering what you've done for me. I'm sorry for forgetting. I'm sorry for being so depressed about the things I'm facing that I forgot what you did in the past. And so, Lord, I just pray 
that you'll just awaken our hearts to build our own memorial, that we'll make a big pile of stones, that we'll remember this day. We'll remember what you did on this day so that we'll build our faith for the future. And I thank you, God, for how you've blessed New Covenant Church in the past. And Lord, you have been faithful to them every year for the last 13 years. There's been some hard times. There's been some difficulties. There's been some disappointments. But Father God, there has been your faithful hand constantly upon this church. And Lord, as they make their move into their new location, we thank you that the same God that's been faithful in this place is going to be faithful on the hill, and you're going to bless them and prosper them. And we thank you for doing great things in their future. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen and amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Yeah.